0: Welcome to another episode of the Father Ted Talk, broadcast here at the National Shrine of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Now here's Father Ted. On this Laetare Sunday, we have the joy of hearing this magnificent and rich parable. It's commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. but We can perhaps ask ourselves whether or not this is the most fitting title for this parable of our Lord. Because it's true, the son plays a fundamental part in the parable. He's the one who demands his inheritance, thus implying he would not mind it if his father was dead. He abandons his father, he squanders his money on a life of self-indulgence, and then he dramatically returns to the father at the very end who receives him with celebration and joy. And what's more, the context of this parable is given, or rather the context is, Jesus is seated in the midst of tax collectors and sinners. And so he's, in a sense, telling them this parable to remind them to never despair, to let them know that they too can be redeemed. They might not be in the Father's house right now, but they can always return. Then again, we have to consider that at the beginning of the passage, it said, To them, Jesus addressed this parable. To who? To the Pharisees and the scribes, they were complaining. So this is a parable that's said in the hearing of the tax collectors and sinners, but it's being addressed to Pharisees. Those people that thought that they were the just ones, the experts in religion. But they had hearts of stone, they were arrogant. They thought themselves better than others. And they are represented also in this parable by the older son, the older son who's indignant that the father would be so compassionate to the younger one. So maybe, more properly speaking, it would be called the parable of the arrogant son, rather than that of the prodigal son. So who is Jesus talking to here? Is Jesus talking to those those of us who have a holier-than-thou complex, who are convinced of their own righteousness, those of us who think that we're sinless like Jesus and Mary? Or is Jesus talking to those of us who can't control their sensual urges and impulses, those people that think they're beyond the mercy of God, those people that have left the Father's house and need to be reminded, you can come back. And in a sense, both, of, both kind of persons can profit from this message. But let's not forget the other character in this parable, the Father. The parable begins with the father and it ends with the father. A father had two sons. And at the very end, we hear the the final words of the parable are coming from the father to the older son. It's like the father who's giving the final message. And it's the father who gives the son his inheritance. It's the father who welcomes the son back. It's It's the father who goes out to talk to the older son. Like the father is actually a very active player here. It's like the first half is dedicated to the younger son and the second half to the older son, but the bridge that connects them, the unifying factor, the pivot point, is that of the father. And so there's one exegete who decided to entitle this parable as the parable of the compassionate father and his two sons, highlighting the fact that, first and foremost, this is a parable about the father, God the father, about the father who receives his wayward children back home, the father who goes in search of those who are too stubborn to recognize their need for mercy, the father whose primary attribute, according to Thomas Aquinas in this wayward world of ours, whose primary attribute towards us as sinners is that of mercy. It's about the father who is merciful and who calls us to be merciful as well. He told the prophet Hosea, Sacrifice and burnt offering I do not desire, but mercy. I prefer mercy to sacrifice. And Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. And again, blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. God the Father is merciful. And we are supposed to be merciful too. We are supposed to be children of the Father. Children are supposed to be like their parents. And if the Father is merciful, this is also a calling towards all of us. We must follow in His footsteps in being merciful, in giving mercy. Yes, receiving mercy, but also giving mercy. The problem is that we don't really know what that means because we sort of limit the idea of mercy to like forgiving people that have offended us. Like, okay, you did this to me, but I'll let it go. I'm being merciful. And yes, that is an act of mercy. That is real mercy. But that's not the sum total of mercy. Or even worse, we might have like a complete misconception of what mercy means. Because in our day and age, our culture has some very misconstrued ideas about this primary attribute of God. One example of this, of just how little our society understands mercy. Physician-assisted suicide, also known as euthanasia, You know what they call it? Mercy killing. We're so loving, we're so merciful, we are going to deprive you of life. There are nine states in the United States that have legalized physician assisted suicide, including Washington DC. The state of Maryland three years ago almost passed it. It passed the Maryland House and it was in the Maryland Senate and it was a 23-23 vote which prevented it from passing three years ago. They tried again in 2020, and it didn't pass again. But that's how close it is. And it's something which is gradually becoming more and more prevalent. But if that's our idea of mercy, then we need to really correct it. Because like, that is not authentic mercy. Or once again, from the movie, um, it starred Will Smith, Seven Pounds. Uh, Will Smith plays a character, a scientist, by the name of Tim Smith. And Tim is guilt ridden because of his role in an accident that killed his wife, his children, and a number of other innocents. He, he just can't live with himself. He's convinced he has no right to live. But what does he do? He starts talking to people that are suffering from some sort of il- illness, affliction, and he's agreeing to donate his organs to them. And that's very good. That's something which is like a merciful person should do. But at the end of the movie, what does he do? He takes his own life so that the organs can be given. And that is not mercy. There are two misconceptions of mercy in this movie. First of all, he's only gonna give his organs to people that deserve them. If they're good people, if they're worthy people, if they're you know, noble individuals, he'll donate his organs to them, but not to the, the low lives, not to the people that are you know, not good. So mercy in this movie is only given to people that are deserving of it. But that's not the mercy of God. That's not the mercy we're called to practice either. The other misconception of mercy in this movie is the idea that he's beyond it. There's no forgiveness for me. I've done something so horrible, there's no going back. I have to end my own life. I can't continue to exist. So he thinks he's beyond forgiveness. And that's not merciful either. That's not the way that we think of mercy. So what is mercy, really? In a single sentence, we can say, it's a kind of compassion for our neighbor's situation that moves us to help, if possible. So in that single phrase, it's a kind of compassion for our neighbor's situation that moves us to help, if, if possible, there's three things. First of all, mercy is interior. It's like this, it's not necessarily an emotion, but it's like an affliction of soul. It's like, I am pained because of what you're going through, because the evil that you are experiencing. And that that's the second characteristic. So I feel pain. Why? Because you, my neighbor, are suffering something, because you're in pain, whether it's physical pain, like a sickness or homelessness or poverty, or you know, fleeing from your homeland, or whether it's psychological, like depression or loneliness, or spiritual, because we see that you're suffering from sin, you're suffering from error regarding God. All these things can stimulate, they can rather arouse mercy within us. We see the evil in somebody else, and we feel bad for them. That's part of mercy. Then the final characteristic is we do something about it. We are moved to help the needy. And that's what separates compassion from mercy. Compassion is the feeling bad, but mercy is feeling bad and doing something about it assisting people materially, or assisting them spiritually, helping them to avoid sin. And so we who are called to be merciful like the Father must do this. We can't just feel bad for what other people are going through. We have to do something about it. And one group of people who are in need of merciful help are the youth whose purity is being threatened today like never before. In 1996, the U.S. Department of Justice released a statement saying, Never before in American history has so much obscene material been available in so many American homes so easily. 1996. Mercy is what we need to practice towards children, towards youth, whose purity is threatened, because if we can somehow do something to bring them back to a life of purity or to prevent them from falling into a life of impurity? That's an act of mercy. Like when God saves us from our sins, that's an act of mercy. When God prevented the Blessed Virgin Mary from falling into sin, that was an act of mercy. And with today being safe haven Sunday in the Archdiocese of Baltimore, I wanted to mention 10 things parents could do to help or protect to help protect or restore the purity of their children so that their homes can be a safe haven from the afflictions of impurity. Because despite the stereotype, let's remember, parents are the number one influential factor in a child's life. It's not their friends, it's not their teachers, it's not even the church, it's the parents. And if you don't see yourself as somebody with kids right now, or like you don't have kids right now, okay, you probably know somebody with kids. Or maybe you will have kids. And so the very first thing that we can talk about, the very first thing to do, is to pray and to sacrifice for your children. And not just pray and sacrifice for them, pray with them as well. Go to confession with them. Like it makes an impact on a child's life when they see their parent going to confession. I still remember seeing my dad going on a regular basis when I was growing up. Two, set the standard for your kids high and be clear. So no nonsense about, when you're ready, or when the time is right, when you meet the one, set the standard high. Don't be content with simply the lie of safe sex, because that doesn't exist, but rather tell your kids nothing before marriage. Three, be a parent first, not a friend. Because setting boundaries for your kids is never going to be rewarding. Very few teenagers come home um, because of a curfew and tell their you know, dad or their mom. Thank you so much for setting that curve for you for me. As I was driving home, I just felt so warm and fuzzy inside knowing that you cared about me enough to set these rules for me. A couple of decades down the road, they will probably be grateful. But don't expect it now. You have to be the parent first that will do the loving deed and not the deed that will make you popular. Four, postpone the age when dating is allowed. So there's one um, chastity speaker by the name of Jason Everett. He recommends waiting until you're 16. I was 16 not so long ago. I was certainly not in the state to like, actually consider marriage at that point in my life. But let's remember, dating is for marriage. And so only if the child is old enough to start thinking about lifelong commitments should they then start dating somebody to see if this is the one. Because dating is not supposed to be a recreational activity. It's for the sake of marriage. Five, have a parenting network in place. Now ideally speaking, we know the f- parents of our children's friends. Like, let's say your kids hang out with your next-door neighbors, you should know their parents. That would be the ideal. But at the very least, try and have parents that you are friends with, that you can talk to, that you can rely upon. That will also be very helpful if you're trying to raise pure children. Six, there's a big one in the 21st century. Monitor your child's device usage. So if a device does not have parental controls, don't buy it for your child. That's a good ground rule. When you do buy the devices, use the parental controls because this is one of those primary ways that children are exposed to it without their parents ever hearing about it. The average age of exposure to pornography in this country is between eight and 11 years old. And never allow your child to bring a device into their bedroom. I've talked to therapists in three different continents and they're all unanimous about this. No devices, no screens in the bedrooms. Not even the parents should have it, they say, but especially not kids. Seven, teach them to say yes to chastity. There are studies, neurological studies, that tell us about the teenage brain. The teenage brain is not motivated by punishments. It's not as if they fear the consequences and therefore they do something. That's why kids drive in a very foolish manner. Rather, a child is motivated by the reward. Teenagers are motivated by the payoff, not the punishment. And so you don't wanna simply say, okay, well, if you have premarital relationships, you will get an STD, you will get pregnant, and you will go to hell. That's not gonna be enough. It'll maybe hold them off till lunch, and then they'll go back at it. So you need to emphasize the positive nature of the virtue of chastity. Say yes to God's plan for your life. Say yes to real love, because premarital sex and real love are not compatible. The two of them do not go together. Eight, talk repeatedly about chastity with your teens. So don't simply have the talk or throw a chastity bomb at them sometime and expect that to like cover them until they get married. They're being bombarded by stuff every day probably that is encouraging them to be impure. And so you need to counter that with a steady stream of advice and encouragement about chastity. Even the bad stuff you see can be an icebreaker or a prompt for a good conversation. You see some sort of inappropriate uh, commercial, or there's something that pops up on a screen. For example, you see in a headline, this couple is getting divorced, you talk to them about the permanency of marriage, or you, you see somebody dressed in an inappropriate way, talk about the respect for the body as the temple of the Lord. Nine. Get over your own insecurities. That is to say, don't let your failures as a parent, because you all, and I, I have failed as a priest, but every parent everywhere always has some failures. There's always something that a parent does wrong. Don't allow that to prevent you from being a teacher to your kids. And finally, practice what you preach. If you expect your children to follow the Church's teachings about premarital relations, make sure you are following the Church's teachings about marital relations. So, during Lent, this is a time of mercy. This is a time to receive the mercy of God in confession. This is a time to give mercy by helping other people, by relieving them from their sufferings. And so let's ask that the Blessed Virgin Mary might intercede for us so that we might be merciful to the people who are in need, the people that are suffering the most, and also grateful to God for the abundant, the super infinite amount of mercy he has offered to us in Jesus Christ.